Does your home have a healthy biome? And if not, how to get one? Today, we unpack all that and more. Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 353, and we are talking mold and healthy home biomes. We're also going to be looking at air conditioning units, uh, hacks to keep them healthy, uh, and we're meeting one of my favorite Insta friends, PJ Harlow, who is based over in New York State in the US, and uh, we connected over both having a bit of a harrowing mold story that changed our life trajectories, uh, as big life events do. And through that, I have come to learn of her work in more detail. I have a huge amount of respect for what she's doing at PJ Harlow Wellness. Uh, she is a cleaning hacks ninja, uh, but also just such an incredible mold consultant, a mold concierge, if you will. So. We all know how tricky it can be to navigate mold when you have an event where you suspect an issue, you want an advocate by your side. And I've been running the Mold Festival for the last two weeks, and I wanted to pull out an interview from the festival to illustrate to you just how valuable these sessions have been, but also to give you uh, one of my favorites because uh, access for all and access for many are two of my core values as an educator in this space and as the founder of the Lotox movement. I've always been about that. I'm not interested in helping a small group of people who have a ton of cash. Um, power to you if you do. It's not um, that I'm against that. It's just that I don't believe having a healthy home and having your health should cost an absolute fortune as it often does when we're moving towards out-of-the-box thinking. And so the Mold Festival was about bringing you 16 professionals who are working across every aspect of dealing with mold, from insurance claims to legal cases to mold consultancy like PJ, uh, to remediation, to building materials, to architecture and design, building biology, mold technician assessments and case studies. We've done it all. So if any of that sounds like you would love a neat little library of 16 sessions with tons of Q&A, a heck ton of amazing things that came up as the conversation started and as people asked questions uh, and to really help build your literacy in both home maintenance and prevention and in uh, what to do when something happens or what to do when you're renovating and you suspect a problem that you want to address before you renovate. On and on I could go, uh, but we have literally covered it all. That's only $49 for you to gain access to that library. Uh, it's on our courses app, so you've got that on the go. You can listen to it in the car, on a walk really easily through the Kajabi app. Uh, and I, I'm just such a huge fan of the work of everybody who was involved. So um, I'm going to put the details in the show notes, uh, or you could also just Google Lotox Life, the Mold Festival, and it'll probably come up as well. Uh, and you'll just get instant access. It'll all be in there with some fantastic uh, further resources and um, supporting tools to help. Uh, one of the things that I'm most passionate about, of course, is the health of the humans as they not only navigate water damaged buildings, but 
as they navigate often the aftermath with trauma and nervous system dysregulation, as well as peeling back the layers of the onion, whether it's toxicity, allergy, or colonization. And that can be really complicated too. So we've had some fantastic sessions on that as well. Now, before I hook into this brilliant chat where you're going to learn so much from PJ Harlow about your the health of your home and how to make it more healthy, I have to, of course, give a nod to our wonderful sponsors that help me put this event on, this show on every single week for free. Uh, and they are Oz Climate and Walida. Now, Walida, you know how much of a fan I am. I think. Uh, Rudolf Steiner was a pioneering human who managed to make so much of his short lifetime in education, in medicine, uh, homeopathics and uh, biodynamic farming, as well as founding uh, the Walida brand. Um, A lot of people know skin food as one of the most popular low-tox OGs of all time. Uh, But of course, there's a whole range. I always give newborn parents uh, the calendula baby um, range, which was what I used on my son when he was a bub. I love, love, love it. I love recommending the white mallow range for people who have quite fragile skin, often um, impacted by things like eczema, psoriasis, dermatitis, to help cocoon and protect it a little bit from the elements. Uh, I could go on. There are some brilliant soap um, uh, shower bars, they're called, super creamy and soapy and delicious and plastic-free, which is wonderful, and uh, a lot more in their... um, First aid, the burns and bites gel is something that will never, ever not be in my medicine cabinet. So you have 20% off the entire Walida range, excluding gift packs, with the code LOWTOXLIFE for the whole month of October. I hope you make the most of it, whether you're stocking up or getting to know something new. And of course, you also have 10% off the additional uh, discounted prices that Oz Climate are often giving their customers which makes a huge difference uh, with your code LOWTOXLIFE uh, at ozclimate.com.au. Unfortunately, both of our offers this month are just for the Aussies, uh, but I'm a huge fan of both. And luckily, Walida is at least available worldwide for you to try if you haven't already. And uh, I'm always banging on about the benefits of dehumidifiers and air purifiers and uh, I don't think we had a single speaker in our mold sessions that didn't mention how useful these tools can be, both in prevention and uh, control and mitigation if there is a problem. So I shall leave you there and we shall enter this wonderful conversation with PJ Harlow. Enjoy. A huge welcome to you, PJ. I'm going to kick off our session by um, just thanking you so much for being a part of this because. I know you have been through some things like I have and like many people have, but what I really wanted to make this about, and it's why I called it a festival, is it has to be enriching. It has to be a time of empowerment. Things have to change. And I've brought together the people that I know know what to do and what needs to happen and then thrown a couple of policy peeps in the mix like the wonderful Michael Rubino and the work he's doing um, because I really feel like there is wind in the sails. Why mould became a thing for you? Let's start there. Sure. And well, first of all, thank you for for having me. It's, it's an honor to to be here today. And um, you know, this is 
I guess the very simple version of that is mold impacted my life in such a way that I could not go back to the way things were, you know, and it, it, it I guess uh, in 2016, I started to get really sick, like many of us did. And it was a mystery, you know, I went to you know, tons of doctor's appointments from neurologists, you know, psychologists. Uh, we were literally know. living a parallel year that year. It's, yeah. it's crazy. And, yeah. Uh, you know, to the point where nobody could figure it out. And my symptoms were, you know, at first they were off and on. And that was the kind of part that really made me wonder, like, is this all in my head? Like, am I making this up? Like, am I just exaggerating, you know, like, and uh, as time went on, the symptom list grew, and I started to keep a journal and everything from, you know, joint pain to just unrelenting fatigue to where I could not function. And it about a year in, it was to the point where my husband was carrying me up our steps and, you know, my kids got symptomatic, but it was still like, you know, hearing that it's like, oh, well, why didn't you figure out it was like environmental, right? But it, it just didn't happen like that. Everybody had different symptoms and like, you're trying to do life and like, Pete's appendix ruptured and then Jimmy's nose is bleeding every day and my daughter suddenly gets asthma and you're like what way when did we become the sick family like what happened to us and uh finally we we found that there was uh mold from our shower stachybotrys was growing in our wall and down into our crawl space and we had uh, the perfect kind of situation, the laundry uh, dryer hose had been disconnected. It was going through our crawl space and exiting out and the tube disconnected from the, the exhaust and was just pumping hot air into our crawl space. And with a family of four, we were doing laundry like all the time you know, kit. So with all the mold down there and in the walls, it was just going right into our HVAC system and just, you know, slowly poisoning us all till the point where, you know, finally we were like, this is it. This is it. This is what it is. And uh, that began our journey into this world. And it was definitely not something I was ever prepared for. Just the lack of resources, the lack of help, the lack of people believing me and and taking me seriously. And I can't tell you how many, you know, side eye rolls I got or, you know, even to the point where it became dangerous for my family and for my children because the school systems here were looking at me like this crazy mom and uh, you know, and my pediatrician was also in that camp of like, this doesn't exist, you know, and it, it, we even had social services called on us at one point. And it was just, I was afraid they were going to take my children from me when I'm, when here I am trying to help them. And so that was so impacting and just so painful, so isolating and just, it changed me forever. It changed my, my, my view of even my friendships. And, and just because I felt like my, my words no longer had any integrity. 
And that, you know, was just really, really like, whoa, you know, like if I tell you aliens came down and talked to me last <laughs> night, you better believe me, you know, <laughs> like, it didn't happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, after uh, I, you know, we went through so much, you know, I can kind of trim it down into a little. Yes, I know, because kind of there's so much to learn as well. This is the thing, but the stories are so painful and complex. Mine is the same. I could talk for three hours about all the different appointments, the different aspects, the different gaslighting, the the um, wondering if I was going to be in a wheelchair soon. Like people don't realise. And, and hearing your story, uh, it echoes mine in so many ways. And, you know, I'm not putting this on for everybody to think, shit, if I see mold in my air conditioning unit, that means we're all going to get as sick as that. That's not, that's why we're here is to actually also not alarm, but it is to show how grave it can be if things don't change as well societally um, and uh, multi-industrially because what you're talking about and what I experienced and what a lot of people have experienced um, really boils down for me to medical associations not being able to get their butts in gear to develop consensus around just how damaging certain water damage molds can be, uh, especially in that um, beyond that allergic presentation of oh, a bit of a runny nose, bit of a stuffy nose, bit of exacerbated asthma, um, it's so much more than that. It is, I mean, it's, it's funny. I was talking to Brennan Vermeer yesterday in one of the pre-records and he's been through it too. And he really helps people in the neuroinflammation space now. And, um, I was, I, I just came up with this, uh, example of how freaking obvious it is that certain molds would be more damaging than others compare it to foraging, Right. We go into the woods, you can pick the mushrooms that you can eat and they're delicious with butter, or you could pick the one that you eat a little bite of and it kills you. Uh, Fungi has the good guys and the bad guys. And in terms of what's in your house, it's the same deal. So don't freak out if you see a bit of green mold on your lemon. Uh, don't freak out if, you know, you keep the cheese in the fridge for too long and you, you notice a little bit of mold, you could actually probably cut that white stuff off your palmas in a way and keep grating sister. So it's not about everything being horrifically bad for you, but it is about starting to really recognize the things that are. And so, um, how did you test because you have gone on to become a mold and healthy home consultant uh, and I absolutely love what you and your partner are sharing on on Insta it's so generous and so comprehensive so anyone who's not following PJ yet please do um how did you test like that you know once you realize there's that whole piece of like how do we actually get the kind of team together that's going to be able to help us make it through this um successfully? Did because you mean that- health, health or home? Oh, okay. Let's start with home. Let's start with home. Okay. For in my situation, uh, at the time, I didn't know anything. You know, I knew very little. And, and so, but we ended up 
having an environmental consultant come in and they did some, I mean, you could see the mold once we found where the leak was and pulled all of our appliances and cabinets out the drywall, you could stick your finger through it. Like it was visible. So that was tested, you know, by swab, they did some air samples, but now knowing what I know, you know, usually the, the, the way that I would kind of, you know, recommend is to start by doing what's called an ERMI test, which is a, a dust test. And that can really be a very good window into understanding if you're being exposed to specific toxic species and and kind of uh, you know a little peek into the history of what's happening it's a dna test uh, to to put it very simply air testing is the traditional method that if you were to just like 1-800 you know Mold, mold rescue. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to come in and they're going to do air sampling. And uh, you'll often hear mixed things about air testing. I'm not really in the camp of being against any type of testing. I think that there's just a usefulness for some and they have weak points and really powerful points. And, and air testing isn't it's just not enough to really identify if there's a problem, you know, exactly. if you already know, like I have, I could possibly have mold in this wall. You could do what's called a cavity sample and they use, and you know, the normal air test, but they take like a little pump and they drill a tiny hole in the wall and put that in there and they can collect in the wall to see, you know, what's happening without having to uh, be aggressive and like damage your whole wall. So air testing is useful that way, but just kind of the, the traditional method, they, they set up and take a sample for, you know, a few minutes in your living room and they compare that to the outside. And that's not really an indicator of like, the outside and the inside are two different biomes completely. So it's not really a fair to try to, to, to compare it in that method. But the ERMI, the caveat is you, it's very complicated to understand. And it was originally built by the EPA uh, for science experiments. They were trying to kind of figure out what's the baseline moldiness index in home. That's what it's called, the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index. And we're kind of using it, I like to say, we're using it off-label, you know, just like how when a doctor will prescribe you a prescription off-label, like they may give propanolol which is for you know your heart and they may say i'm going to give you this for your anxiety right just because they're doing that it doesn't mean that the prescription isn't going to work because that's not what it was originally created for and i i use that as an analogy to explain how we're using the ermi we're not using it as it was originally made or intended but that doesn't mean the data is not valuable and if you have the right person who's you know, really understands all of these molds and they're taking in your history and who lives there and what kind of symptoms they have and, you know, what's been happening in the home. And they're really looking at everything from a holistic lens. Then the, the data is really, really valuable and it can help someone guide you to the next step. And that that's kind of what we do. Mm. Uh, 
Yeah. And I really appreciate you um, talking about the different types of data because this confuses people. And part of the problem with not having a medical consensus, which then would give us the domino effect of all the other industries realizing, whoa, there could be a ton of litigation here. We need to get better at designing buildings. We need to get better at building. We need better qualified tradespeople. Um, you know, you don't want the rookie doing the waterproofing for goodness sakes. Um, <laughs> like and people on the job. Yeah, that's it. And people are putting their life savings. I was reading an article just this morning there was a flat iron building built in Brisbane here in Australia 156 million dollar stunning you know new block they it turns out they cut every corner you could possibly cut and three years in there are water pools in people's kitchens uh cracks in slabs in the car park and it's and if they don't win this case against the construction company, the developer, that's people's life savings gone, which is why I really care about this beyond it. That's why I don't call this story a sob story, what we've been through. it's It's got to be beyond that. It has to become something bigger for when people get this sick. I mean, you can't just go, oh, poor me, you know, this really sucked and and then and then not try to change something because you know it's gonna happen to someone else. And and that's just so awful. And Ermi, I, I love that test because you know, we have a moisture meter for when we inspect homes. It's a useful little piece of insurance policy, at least against a systemic moisture issue. But it doesn't tell you if five years ago there was a leak and they just patched it up, fixed the pipe and did nothing else. That won't tell you if there's really bad dust in that place left over from five years ago. Um, And so Ermi is almost like a a history test of your home uh, as well as being really useful for the people who are symptomatic, um, gravely symptomatic. So for the people listening today, if you are an Australian-based person, you can get it from NSJ Enviro. Uh, David Lark is one of the pre-records who I'll release at the end of the festival, and he's one of our best mycologists here in Australia. Um, But there are a few places you can order it in the US as well, um, in North America. Can you take us through a couple of options? Sure. I mean, we sell them on our website. Oh, Uh, awesome. Great. even have a Perfect. package that's built with an interpretation for people and uh that's kind of one of the 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 beginner ways people kind of begin to work with us as we usually do in ermi and that gives us like a little bit of a picture of like okay what's been happening and and uh, we sell mycotoxin tests too even little swab kits for people as well uh but there's other places that you can purchase them too um, if you want to go direct through the lab, but, um, I find that we, it's easier. We just package it for people. So we, that's a, people don't know how to interpret it. So you don't yes, want to get this it, scary it, piece it, of paper yeah, and not know what I'm to do. I'm all about empowering people yeah. and, you know, but I also want to be very realistic about your, it's just not, it's just not something that is, I can even, say in 15 minutes and teach you how to interpret it there'd have to be like a master class for like eight weeks or something just <laughs> it's really really complicated unfortunately well, that's why you guys are all qualified and and we're <laughs> trying to learn so um 
In terms of uh, testing, I would love to ask you a question around people's budgets. So sometimes, especially like the thing, again, it comes back to not having consensus and awareness and literacy, people can often spend years being sick, deplete, like that's what we did. We had funds for a deposit, then the sick thing happened and then boom, like you're trying to get well, you're going to specialists, there's another thousand there for that test, that scan, that person, um, and on and on it goes. And then you don't have the cash once you finally figure out what it is. That's the cruelest part of this for a lot of people who've been through it. Um, which is why I say don't ignore the stuff he knows chronically. Like don't wait five years for it then to turn into like, a, you know, something else. It's not normal to sound like a Mr. Snuffleupagus when you're yeah. sleeping, you know. <laughs> like we we j- legitimately nicknamed our son Mr. Snuffleupagus. Wow. When he, right? When he was right? little because he sounded so like. <laughs> and then oh. like but we moved out of that place and he was fine. So, you know, and you just, but you just don't know. You try, you irrigate, you do all the things that the pediatrician tells you to do. Yeah. Um, bit more fish oil, I guess that'll help. But like, it's, I know they normalize we're still, much we're, Yeah. And we're trivializing um, chronic symptoms. I think that's, that's the part that really is upsetting. It's not normal to have chronic symptoms for anything. You have to figure out why it's happening. So, in that case where there is a budget, because technically you could Ermi test like each bedroom and go, ha, I found it. It's here. This is where there was the big problem. But that could get really expensive. Um, what can we do in terms of developing our own literacy to be really good detectives and try and narrow down on what we need to be testing for in the first place? Well, to to piggyback off what you just said, I want to clarify that ERMI is not a test that I would really ever recommend for people to do like room by room. It's just too expensive. And I Mm. don't feel like it's really a tool that is meant to be the where. It's Mm -hmm. more to answer the if, you know, Mm -hmm. and how much. Um, When you get to the where part, that's usually where you really truly have to bring an IEP or an inspector in. If you wanted to do it yourself, you know, certainly you can get a moisture meter, a flashlight, and really start to look at your home instead of aesthetically and functionally, but more, you know, understanding that there is a combination of physics, chemistry, and biology happening in your house. And, you know, you're looking for any clues, you know, a lot of the areas that, you know, and let me back up for a second. When I used to go look at a home, and I know that most generally everybody looks at a home this way, I would look at a place and say, oh, my bed's going to go here. And wouldn't that look great on the mantle? And this is where we put the couch. And, you know, and that I remember kind of- those days. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and so I never even once contemplated looking at the crawl space, the basement, the attic, the HVAC, those four things right there. 
are, are probably the major areas that we see problems. These are, you know, some of the areas that are not conditioned, okay? And, and you know, also the areas that are just, they're ignored, you know? Who cares about what's going on in the attic? I just throw a box of holiday decorations up there and I only go up one up the steps once a year, you know? But really, these are a part of our building envelope and therefore can hugely affect your health. And these are where some of the major areas where mold is going to grow because you're not monitoring these areas. So I think that's part of the problem is that we're never taught this stuff. You're not taught how to maintain your home and how to really understand all the things that are happening in it. And I think that's kind of like the very first thing is understanding your house and, you know, where's the sump pump if you have one and you what's know, what a sump pump? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. A sump pump is if you have like a basement uh, that if water gets in your basement that's gonna pump it out and you know it's connected to like your drainage like here when it rains really hard the water is you know draining into your foundation and there's you know all these pipes under there and our sump pump is like constantly working to ensure that it's pumping all that water away from your house so I don't know. You might not have those there, but. Well, um, we we don't have as much of a tendency in Australia in builds to have basements. Uh, if anything, uh, if I think about Queensland and some of the hotter um, East Coast areas, we tend to build on stilts, which was quite smart, really, in retrospect. Um, but uh, it's probably one of the only smart <laughs> building design examples I can think of in Australia. Um, but we, yeah, basements aren't a huge thing for us. There are a few. Um, if anything, because we have quite hilly, some of the cities are quite hilly, especially Sydney, you have building on slopes. So like the, the um, there's like a bottom playroom that tends to be off the back of the house and on a slope. And that can tend to be where a lot of people end up finding their issues. Um, it's it's that being built into and under a ground technically, right? Anything that is technically underground, if you were to just flatten out that piece of land, is something you need to be really vigilant around. Absolutely. And you made a perfect point here is that there's all different types of houses. So we could sit here all day and I could go through like so many people often ask me, well, what do I find in a healthy home? And it's like, that's a really huge topic. And <laughs> yeah. it depends on where your climate is, on where you are, because you build differently based on the climate, because a house might work in Australia or California, but it's not going to work in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Vermont, because the weather is so various and different there. So I think really understanding your house and kind of being a detective and and kind of just inspecting and and looking at all of the different areas and looking for signs of moisture you know i think sometimes when you start in this world of mold you you focus everything on the microbe when really it's the moisture 
You know, that's, that's what we want to really work to prevent is the moisture because that's the root cause. It's not the mold. The mold won't come if there isn't any moisture. If you keep things dry and, uh, you know, and allow, uh, I mean, things are going to get wet, but there's certain ways that you can build to allow things to evaporate or to dry and, and not just, you know, actual water, but also water vapor and you know humidity those are also big issues that we see it's not just always leaks or you know flooding or things like that mold also grows just simply because of condensation formation or from humidity mm. and this comes up a lot uh because in australia especially we don't build for extreme climate so we don't have extreme winter and we don't have a lot of double glaze, especially in our older properties. It just doesn't exist. And so hot bodies in a cold outside in the winter and everyone's got the condensation happening. And this is obviously um, something we don't always need to freak out about. Maybe you just need to put a great dehumidifier in place that can really just pull that um, in the mornings and just leave it on till lunchtime and then dry everything out. But Sometimes if you've got the shoddy building structure, that condensation can be dripping into wall space without you knowing, and then there it can cause problems. So I do want to ask you a question around that because condensation is such a common one that comes up. Um, what are some of the ways, can we even just ourselves see structurally if there's a danger of it going into the wall space or do we need to actually just bring someone in to check it? Sometimes you could, you mm. know, it really depends on the situation. I know that oftentimes, it, you know, when we talk about HVACs um, and, you know, it, it really depends on the situation. Like if you, for instance, if you've got your ductwork in an unconditioned space, that would be something you definitely want to monitor because when you have those temperature differentials, that's what really creates condensation. That's something, you know, understanding, I mean, I'm not going to get into like dew point because that's really, really complicated. <laughs> that's like a whole hour uh, lesson on dew point, but, um, you know, condensation forms, you know, it's not just temperature that affects when condensation is going to form, but just logically, if you have something in a hot space and, and that's creating cool air, you're going to get that problem in, in some form or space. But, you know, in the inside of your house, you know, just try to look out for things. Uh, you know, if you ever see any drips on your vents or something like that, that's usually meaning that there's a, 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 a large amount of humidity in your air. One of the other ways that you can even tell if you're prone that's very inexpensive is just getting a little hygrometer. Um, you can handheld one and kind of just check the humidity in your house. But you know, certain signs of it uh, are, you know, around windows, around sliding glass doors, you know, wherever you're going to have um, some kind of temperature differential, you can look for things like, you know, water stains, discoloration, bubbling, cracking, things like that. But in many cases, it's usually going to take a professional to come in 
and kind of assessed your house and, and, and really look at a number of different factors. But a mold inspector, if you're not feeling well um, and uh, you've got these kind of chronic symptoms, then I would probably uh, look into hiring an IEP or mold inspector. I'm sure you're going to make some recommendations on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, because half the battle is actually finding someone who knows what they're talking about um, and isn't just going to do some plate or air samples and tell you you don't have a problem and then just leave everybody sick. Um, and in fact, sometimes I've known that to be the case with building biologists as well. Um, who are like, no, you've got a great home here. It must be something else. Uh, and I really just think we need to advocate um, for knowing when something's just not right and push, find someone else. You are the customer and audition people as if you really wanted to be the hit Broadway show. Like you want the right person to um, to really come in and be a star for you guys. And uh, And I think... That in itself, because of the lack of consensus, uh, it means we just have a bunch of renegade people saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'll just come in and fog it and it'll be gone and you'll be fine. Um, and that's still what a lot of real estate agents are doing in rentals. Um, uh, one guy said, oh, you, you, we'll just paint over the wall so it'll be perfect again. <laughs> just... Oh, no. And this oh. was before I knew mold was beyond annoying. That that was like many, many years ago. And I still remember thinking, will it though? But because you're not the professional, you know, you don't know. And this is part of the reason I think literacy is my primary goal here is people knowing to advocate and say, no, this is not right. I want better and and demanding it. Um so in terms of the HVAC, like different people have different air conditioning units. Some people have those split systems or reverse cycle or, um, uh, you know, in the country there's unfortunately still a lot of evaporative cooling systems with like those big tanks of the water and uh, I've heard some horror stories about that. Um, but I've seen you guys do some pretty funky things like position an air filter under your duct work to actually kind of filter and then send clean air back in there. Can you talk about general air system maintenance and, and some hacks that we can know? Because sometimes people move into apartment buildings or they get a renovation, they get beautiful ductwork done so that they don't have units kind of unsightly or, um, or having to use big fans everywhere. Like a lot of people like those clean lines and that's fine, but, it's also a mystery as to what the heck is happening in there and, and, and how we keep it healthy. Can you give us some tips on that? Sure. I think that generally, um, again, you know, knowing what, what kind of system you have, but in general, kind of most newer homes and most homes uh, have, have, you know, the split system where they have ductwork and a air handler unit inside, and then their condenser outside. People also have what's called mini splits, which look like a little kind of, um, a little system that may be stuck to your wall. Uh, and, and that kind of runs tubing outside to an outside condenser. The, the difference is, is that you don't have ductwork with that. Um, but, but, 
you know, the, the split system is going to take um, some maintenance. And, and one of the, the bigger areas you want to maintain is your air handler unit. Okay. And this is kind of like the engine, the, the main part of your system. And one of the ways that it creates cool air is it's taking warm air into the machine. Okay. And then it's putting Freon in there and, you know, creating that cool air, but there's a thing called an evaporator coil in this machine and it's made to be wet and it gets yucky and it has a thing called a condensate drain or condensate line. And it's kind of like um, just a tube that will drain somewhere outside of your house, okay? And these kind of get really gross and yucky, especially- The if, actual tube itself? Yes, the Got line, it. it's really mm. yucky. Kind of like I compare it to like the inside of a sippy cup, like, you know- Ew, you yeah, say no more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and that water is just dirty. And if you don't clean that line, if you don't ask your HVAC technician to clean that line, they may not, it's not really always part of their actual little, you know, service that they come out. So I would say that depending on your usage and and where you live, like here on the East Coast, we kind of have equal seasons. Summer lasts for about three to four months. So we kind of do it in the beginning of the season and then after as well, we will get someone to come in and they'll open up the system. Um, generally homeowners are not recommended to open up their air handlers just because there's a lot of complicated machinery in there. So it's not something that I really would uh, say for anybody to DIY, but you want to open that up. You have your tech open it up and you hand them your phone. Okay. You be with them, try to get involved in the process. So, you know, be a curious kid is, is how I, say it and hand them your phone and say, Hey, can you take a picture of the coils? And also if you can take a picture of the fan in there, there's a thing called a blower fan. And those two things especially are supposed to be nice and clean. They should be nice and silver. If they're black, brown, discolored in any way, full of what looks to be dust, you know, that could be an issue that could be you could possibly it could possibly be mold we don't know you can't you can't ever visually say that's mold even if it's specter it's kind of like your ethics your code of ethics the only way you can confirm is by doing a test but if it's really bad then that is usually a sign that you're going to want to uh, get that cleaned or you know if it's black, I would maybe call in somebody else and have it tested first. Um, especially if your ductwork is also showing signs of the same thing, because if it is compromised, cleaning isn't always really going to do anything. You know, when we talk about cleaning ducts, you'll hear a lot of different information on that. Our camp is, and to, to preface this is, we're, our main focus is the health of the occupants, okay? That's like our number one focus. And oftentimes we've had people get their ductwork cleaned and then all of a sudden they get sick or their symptoms get worse. And this is because the process of cleaning ducts 
is they bring in this truck and it's a very powerful like compressor and they'll use these things called air whips and it's kind of like a little I don't know octopus looking thing that they put through your duct to break up the dust and then they suck it all out with this big vacuum but the hoses and everything they're not like fully sealed you know it's not like the, this is the material is made out of some super you know HEPA filtration or anything so it's going to get particulate matter kind of spread all over the place so if you have moldy ducts it's not really fully ever going to get them clean I like to say I use this analogy all the time to help people really understand when we talk about contamination and like mold, mycotoxins, things like that, it's kind of greasy in a way. Mm, it's very sticky, heavy mold. My, mycotoxins are lipophilic. So if you're trying to clean ductwork, it's like the equivalent of like if you had a whole bunch of toddlers eating fried chicken at a dinner table and then you gave <laughs> powdered donuts for dinner. And then I gave you a hairdryer to clean the table. It's not really going to get the table as clean as you'd like. It's not the same thing as wiping it. Right. And we can't get in our ducts to wipe it. So oftentimes, you know, in many cases, if a duct work is, is I'm not saying everybody's is, but there are some cases where people are very, very sick. And their ductwork is compromised to that degree where the only option is really to replace it, especially flex ducting, which looks like kind of like, you know what a slinky is? Yes. It looks That's like what mom and dad have. Yeah. With like aluminum foil on it. And then there's metal ducting, which is a little bit easier to clean, but flex, you just have to replace it. But uh, but yeah, you really want to assess that inside of the air handler unit. And then take a look at the vents. Maybe your your tech can take some pictures for you. And at least that way you have some, some evidence that you could use with a consultant or an IEP. Um, but I would just hold off on doing anything until you kind of get some more. The, the objective is to kind of collect enough data so you can make the best risk assessment to figure out what you should do. In all honesty, if an HVAC system is set up correctly, you shouldn't have to clean the ducts. The filtration and, and kind of all the other things that you're doing around your house from setting up air purifiers, vacuum, HEPA vacuuming frequently, keeping your dust levels down, all these things in combination can keep that dust out of your ducting system. And, and that's the goal. We don't want to provide any food if there does happen to be any condensation for mold to eat, you know, you have to have these, these, these combinations of things for these situations to happen. So those are my, probably my best recommendations on that. Yeah. I love that. And having an air filter, like at the base of an exit point or a, a split system is a really great way to just keep making sure that it's, um it's cleaning things up. And then you mentioned, um, dust. So I want to go into that in a, in a second, but I just wanted to ask about like servicing intervals. You mentioned beginning of the season and end of the season. If you had two big pronounced seasons, like you guys have East Coast America, um, you, you get humidity like we do here on the East Coast of Australia. Um, and like, would you be saying, okay, it's mid spring. Now I'm going to clean to get ready for needing to use it a lot over the summer. 
and then you would clean or, or get it serviced at the end of summer as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And how often, sorry, go for it. No, when you kind of go from like heat to cool and then cool to heat, those are usually the best times just to get everything checked up, tip top, because those are also the very common times where we hear people say they became symptomatic too, is when they those switches, something happens in it, that's often when things happen, when the temperature changes outside and when you're changing the temperature inside. Mm, great tips. And then in terms of the filters, like different systems have different filters, obviously, but how often should we be changing a HEPA filter that's used for our air conditioning options? The minimum I would say would be monthly, but it, you're right. It depends on the type of filter. Like here in our system, we have one of the thicker types of, of uh, filters and it's about three inches. I would say if, if it's about three inches, you do about every three months, but take a look, you know, if you're new to this, maybe go down monthly and kind of check it out and see what they look like. But I would say the thicker ones, three months, if you have the thin ones that are probably about one inch, then you want to do monthly. And um, there's also uh, the MERV rating that, I mean, at least that's what we have here in uh, the States, M-E-R-V. And you'd want probably uh, an 11 is really good. Um, they make higher uh, levels like 13 and higher, but you want to be careful by going too high because in some cases it could be putting too much restriction on uh, the airflow and that could cause problems too. So 11 works great. That's going to filter mold spores. You know, it's not that much difference uh, of, of what we're filtering out. So I find that to be good. And you could probably ask your HVAC technician to, um, you know, to run diagnostics. They can look at the static pressure. They can look at all of those things when they're there. Um, another thing to ask, uh, is, um, and it just left my mind. I'll get it back. I promise. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think, uh, oh yes. Manual yeah. J, uh, manual J is, is, uh, I mean, that's kind of like what everybody in the United States HVAC, uh, kind of goes by, but there's, there's a, it's a way of measurement for them in the HVAC world. And it's much more over my pay grade. Cause that's usually when I, hand off to my guys at that point and uh, yeah. who do this and dedicate their lives to HVAC. And, and, and so I respect that, but that's another, uh, another key thing. Like, do you understand manual J and is that how you do your calculate your load calculations? And if they say yes, that would be a good person to go for as well. Nice. Because again, it's a whole other industry where there's little regulation and someone can say, yeah, I'm an HVAC cleaner or yeah, I specialize in split systems. And then like, yeah, it turns out and it's they... so difficult to, mm. I mean, it, sometimes I feel like, you know, and that was kind of why I, I started doing what we, we do is because I felt like when I was making all of these calls and interviewing, I was like, wait a minute, my only basis is like how nice they are. And that, you know, and that, that was like, I don't want to be basing these huge decisions. Like I wouldn't pick a surgeon based on how nice he was to me, 
you know, and this is my health. So I want people who are experts in their craft. And so I think that's why consulting is like another role that can be really helpful for people to have, you know, that person by them who can say, no, no, this is who you want, or this is the direction that you, or these are some good options for you just because, you know, Again, I love empowering people. I love the time that we're in where you can go online and search things. But some of these topics are so complex. You know, you want to build. I wouldn't do it alone without a building consultant. There's some great consultants out there that are are really versed in, um, you know, passive housing and, you know, all kinds of stuff that are really, really, really smart. And so uh, I think that it's just the whole building industry deserves some respect because it's definitely more complicated than I ever imagined. I started, I started out in health and I thought that I could do both. And once I started really, really getting into this, I was like, you know what? Like I can't do both. I can't that. I can't give it the time it deserves. You know, I can't be up on the most, you know, most, uh, you know, technologically advanced stuff in both things here, you know, help moving at such a trajectory. And so is this, so I had to pick one. And yeah. so you picked this. a good one. Yeah. And then one more question on when we get this sort of stuff serviced, like I always think, God, I don't want them like pulling this machine apart, especially if the bedroom's carpeted or, like what is a safe bubble to kind of create around them while they work? Cause I've seen you guys tape up um, like a, way, a section off parts of your house with like a plastic sheeting. Um, and I was like, Oh, I am so doing that when we next get um, a service because you just don't really think about that again. Like you just think you're getting it serviced. Great. But like, that is a lot of stuff being pulled apart and a lot of, potentially dust or mold being then put into your indoor air during that process, right? I think that that's why it's important to kind of follow this. It's a longer process for sure, but while you should really have your HVAC guy come and assess, no cleaning scheduled, nothing. It's more just help me start to get collect some data. What's going on with my system? Is it sized right for my house? You know, what's going on in the, in the ductwork? What's going on in my air handler unit? How do my coils look? How does my blower look? If all those things are great, then, you know, you really wouldn't need to clean your ducts. Like I said, if all those things are, are not good, then, you know, Cleaning, I would want to have a mold inspector okay that cleaning first to make sure like, okay, it's not potomium, it's not aspergillus, it's not anything dangerous, it's just dust and or maybe drywall if it's a new build, oftentimes in new builds, they're full of drywall. Um, you know, if it were a brand new build, let me go backwards, if it were a brand new build, you could probably get it clean to get that drywall out of there and you wouldn't have to through this process that I'm talking about. This is more for like homes that have been established and, you know, this is the first time you're exploring that. But if you did get the okay and and you wanted to clean your ducts, 
usually the company is going to block everything off for you. They're usually going to plastic everything up. Um, I personally, I would probably shy away from any kind of disinfection or anything like that in my ductwork, just because I'm just, uh, I have a little bit different views on the microbiome and I, I'm really careful about the amount of antimicrobials that are used in my home just because, you know, I am, there's a, only two directions you can go, sterilization or life, you know, anti-life or life. And we just have to be really careful. I mean, the home microbiome is the fastest evolving microbiome on the planet. And, you know, when we look at our immunity and what we are, I mean, we are microbial beings. So as we said at the very beginning, you're supposed to have some level of mold and microbes in your house, you know, Certainly don't want mold growing in our walls, but like gonna... a gut, like a yeah, gut, you're supposed exactly. to have a little bit of candida, a little bit of E. coli. It's a cocktail and you just want to make sure the ingredients are balanced. That's how I always put it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. No, uh, and I think, well, we all saw how um, lockdowns affected us. Absolutely no judgment. If you got vaccinated, if you didn't, whatever you think about all of it, I, there is zero judgment in my community ever. But what we cannot argue is that not touching humans for two years was seriously bad for our immune system. And like, it was like we were all toddlers starting daycare for the first time for the first six months of getting back out there. And our homes are the same. And I know most of my friends who've had the sickest children in terms of needing antibiotics and getting infections are the ones who were running around the playground with the anti bacterial wipes and trying to keep them clean all the time. And I think there's really just something very important in that um, cultivation of a healthy biome in each part of our lives. So I want to focus the last 20 minutes on that because yes, we can have these problems and yes, we can have these also health disasters, but there's a beautiful story about actually learning how to cultivate a healthy home biome. And it's a huge part of the work you guys do. Um, so how do we start? But it's like, it's almost like this fantastic project where we might be able to crowd the bad guys out um, by doing lots of good things. I think that it coming back to like foundations and, and, you know, I've worked with so many people that over the years I've, I've learned that many people have different ideas of what a healthy home is. And so I think that a, a big part of what I've been working on recently is helping to concretely define a lot of these things, because I think there's so many loose terms thrown around in our industry from healthy home to, you know, even talking about sensitivity and hypersensitivity and, and, you know, mold sickness and all the things that fall under that umbrella. But with the home microbiome, I think really understanding what a healthy home is and what it means to you. I know what it means to me. A healthy home to me is going to be a diverse uh, ecology of, bacteria, fungi, yeasts, uh, 
protozoa, you know, even parasites, right? Um, all of these things aren't all inherently bad. And, and I think that is, is a big part of what we need to understand when we even look at, you know, they, I, I, I read an amazing uh, study where they looked at um, uh, Amish kids uh, and they were looking at rates of asthma. And they also looked at Hutterite kids uh, which the Amish here and the Hutterite families uh, came over here in like the 1800s from Europe. And they live very similar types of lifestyle. They don't have electricity. Uh, they're farmers. You know, they both don't allow uh, pets inside. They drink raw milk. And, you know, so it was a very interesting study. But the the most interesting part of it is the... Um, the Hutterite children have a, a rate of 23% uh, asthma in their children, where the have zero. It's even higher than like regular children in America. And so they wanted to figure out like what was the, the big difference. And so um, one of the things to note was that um, they're, they're both farmers, but the difference is uh, the Hutterite families went industrial like and they kind of have like monocrops and their farms are kind of farther away from their uh their houses where the Amish are you know more old school and they grow kind of regeneratively and they have all different kinds of crops and they're the doors of their homes are only about 50 feet from their farms. And so what they did, obviously they couldn't test humans, but uh, what they did was they took these mice that were uh, already um, kind of built to have um, an illness, kind of an autoimmune inflammatory illness similar to asthma. And their kryptonite, if you will, was this egg protein. And so they took uh, some dust um, from each of the children's bedrooms, the Amish children's bedrooms and the Hutterite children's bedrooms, and they put it in these uh, little kind of, um, you know, those little allergy things that you, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, they they did, they put the one just with egg protein and they gave it to a mouse and they gave egg protein with the Hutterite dust and then egg protein with the Amish dust. And as expected, the, the first one with the egg protein, uh, you know, had an allergic reaction to the, the egg protein. The second one with the Hutterite dust uh, was like through the roof, crazy, you know, and, and really, really, really got sick. And the Amish dust basically like healed the mouse and wow. they didn't even have any reaction. So it was like amazing. And, and one of the things that they noted was the diversity of the bacteria found in the Amish dust was, was just so much more diverse. And if you don't know what diversity means for anyone listening, it, diversity is kind of like the amount and different kinds of species that you have. So you've got good guys and 
bad guys and little guys and purple guys and you know yellow guys and and it's just a nice diverse mix of uh bacteria and fungi and all these things like i said so it's really telling to me that story and and it's kind of like fascinating when when we look at like our homes and and even how microbes affect us and so i think that especially in this topic of mold and mold remediation you know the the tactics that i see used in this are just kill 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 you know and 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 so for us uh, we've moved kind of away from that and it's more about removal and just trying to remember like our goal isn't to sterilize the place and annihilate every microbe because what happens then then you're almost priming the environment for like a stealth microbe situation after that because if you wiped out all the little guys you know then you're only going to be left with the strongest most exactly like you said the gut what happens when you take antibiotics, right? And what, what happens when you take too many? It wipes out your gut bacteria. Um, and, and so, you know, when I think of a healthy home, it, it's more so I want there to be some bacteria. I'm not afraid of those small things. You know, it's almost kind of like rewilding your house degree and 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 having the understanding that you're you're going to want to get to that point um at the end and i think that can kind of change some of the decisions that you'd make you know when you're 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 making these decisions along this path of, of what direction you want to go in knowing that and knowing how you know, these microbes are what prime our immune systems and help them. It, it, it not only helps them to, or helps us, excuse me, to know when not to uh, or when to react, but when not to react as well. And, and if without them, we end up being very vulnerable um, and, you know, almost like our, our immunities is naive and overreactive. And this is when you get people who are hypersensitive to a degree, their systems are so, you know, um, uh, overreactive, like, whoa, what is that? You know? And, and so I think that that all kind of plays together in that. So, that's kind of my view of like what a healthy home is. Certainly there can be different variations of that, you know, from EMFs to, uh, you know, healthy building materials and, you know, just there's so many different variations, you know, good water and all those different things can can be built into that. But that the microbiome is kind of the core of what our practice is founded on and really respecting that that symbiotic excuse me symbiotic relationship that we have with the microorganisms around us yeah so so well um articulated because uh again yeah hypersensitivity i wonder does it stem you know i was given antibiotics chronically as a child it took a long time to rewild my gut um, now I have a fantastically diverse 
um, species mix, but it took a really long time to get there. And uh, and it's a huge body of work unto itself. So what does that body of work look like for a home? Like, you know, because a lot of people in toxic mold support type groups, which can be very scary places on the internet for the uninitiated <laughs> um, when you, because there's a lot of fear and panic in those spaces. It's quite energetically tricky to navigate, not getting caught up in all of that stuff. So I now try to try to stay out. Um, our Australian one is wonderful. Um, the American one, I've, I have to say, PJ kind of freaks me out. Um, <laughs> but um, so there's a lot of panic in there. So there's people saying, oh, get all your house plants out. They're going to have mold. And, and then you think, but aren't the plants part of the diversity of the microbiome of the house? So can you step us through some ways to cultivate that healthy home biome mix of microbes in from from like maybe from a cleaning products perspective as well as the things that you put in it and the things that you don't stress about sure sure i mean just because you mentioned it with plants that's a big question that i get all the time and um they've even looked at some other studies i think that the important thing is is you know Yes, can plants get moldy? They can. The soil can. If you're overwatering it, they can, you know, grow grow different yeasts and different fungi. But do I think that that's like the main problem that that people are having? No, certainly, you know, there's a spectrum, as we said, of of people that are going to react differently. I like to say you've got people who are symptomatic, people who are susceptible, people who are sensitive and hypersensitive. You can be one of those things, two, three, or four. If you're all four and you know that you're super reactive to anything, then maybe plants not maybe the best thing for you until later on when stabilized and you're not in this position, but I have plants. I mean, I have one right behind me right there. I have an aloe plant. And, and so I love plants and I think, um, I really like plants that are indigenous to your area as well. I think that would be one of the things I would try to look for. Um, just because that's going to be supportive of, you want to try to make your environment as as more natural to where you are um, as as possible. Certainly, if you like, you know, plants that wouldn't normally be there, that's okay. But you know, just make sure that you're watching the soil and and if they are coming from a contaminated space, uh, then I would certainly change out the pot and change the soil, maybe wipe the leaves gently with something like branch basics or something very just delicate, you know, a very muted down dish soap and water um, and rinse them off. Um, it certainly, you probably won't be able to do that with a cactus, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, Don't try this at home, kids. Yeah, yeah, if you've got an ivy or something like that, but um, but yeah, another way is, you know, keeping your dust levels down. And that's really important. I don't really have brooms in our house. I use Swiffer, you know, the kind of microfiber cloths um, to, because that really helps to, to pick up the dust. If you've got carpeting in your house, 
you're going to want to vacuum that pretty frequently because they put off a lot of particulates. And when you're vacuuming, make sure that you're doing it in, um, you know, I have a microfiber right here, but when you're vacuuming, you want to not just go up and down and up and down and up and down. You kind of want to go diagonally and, you know, change it up. So you're mm, different. So you're vacuuming. disturbing the fibers and. Yeah. And, and you're yeah. vacuuming in different directions um, is, is really important. It's also good to have good air filters in your house. Like all of these things kind of work cohesively together. And when I say air filters, um, I don't really, um, you know, I don't want to open up a, a another bigger topic, but I would just stick with good HEPA air filters for now that are going to remove, you know, the ionizers and things like that. They're actually putting something else into the air and that's like a whole nother topic, but we're trying to remove as much as that particulate pollution as possible. And when you are cleaning, remember that there is a big difference between cleaning, sanitizing, and disinfecting. And I think that especially since we're post-COVID, we kind of have gone crazy a little bit with the disinfectants because it was scary to go all through that. And, you know, you, you're hearing from the news and all over the place to, you know, spray your counters and spray everything, you know, even to, to put them in your diffusers and everything like oh my that. Gosh. <laughs> um, it's like crazy. Yeah. Um, mm. But I like to, you know, there's a time and a place for antimicrobials, which is kind of like a blanket term for disinfectants. And just remember, these things are life killers. And you really only need to use them in spaces where there's, you know, bodily fluids, feces, urine, or, you know, any kind of like possible bloodborne pathogens, or, you know, certainly your kitchen drain or something like that, where there's a lot of yuckiness, there could be stuff there as well. Or if like you made fish on your counters, certainly wipe any meat, things like that. Um, and, but as far as like spraying it everywhere, that's unnecessary. You don't need do that. So I try to keep those areas separate and remember to clean in layers. As much as we've been marketed to that you can do both, you can disinfect and clean at the same time. That's really just marketing lingo. You should really kind of do your cleaning. And then if you have any areas to disinfect, like I'll clean my toilet. And then when I'm done, I'll disinfect. And you also need to remember when you are disinfecting that it's not instant. Just because you spray it on there, it doesn't instantly kill bacteria. There's a thing called a saturation or dwell time. So depending on what you're using, um, I like to use force of nature or hypochlorous acid. It's non-toxic. Uh, and it's a EPA registered uh, antimicrobial. And, but it takes at least 10 minutes or longer. You have to let it sit before it to work. Um, so that's important too. So if you are, you know, it's more like you're cleaning to remove and then you're using a disinfectant to apply uh, to whatever it is that 
is clean. Another thing to remember is that sometimes uh, if you haven't cleaned, like for instance, not that I would recommend using bleach, but bleach and ammonia, uh, it will hinder their effects, their antimicrobial effects. If there is any organic material, like if there's urine on a toilet seat and you just pour bleach on it, it will make the bleach not work. So it, it's not even doing what people think it's doing because there's still organic matter there that hasn't been cleaned. So that's why we do everything in layers. And, uh, and I feel like this is a way to kind of respect that biome. I'm not really a fan of, you know, this is a new space. There's a lot of new gadgets out there that like, you know, are talking about putting hydrogen peroxide molecules in the air and, you know, all these different things. And they sound great, but really remember like, okay, remember that, that thing I just said a little while ago, there's, these are two directions you can go sterility or life. And if, you know, if we're trying to emulate the way that we lived a long time ago, um, we need to kind of remember that that's just not really natural in a way. And so, um, plus we just don't have long-term studies on what that actually does. And there's a lot of chemical reactions from, from using things like ionizers and ozone and, you know, all of those oxidation processes can create things like aldehydes, formaldehydes, and other byproducts based on what you have in your house. You could have linoleum that was put down with some kind of glue that is going to react with very low doses of ozone from some of these machines. Or even I read another study where um, they used an ionizer and it was very low levels of ozone that were being produced, like lower than what the standard is, which is, uh, I believe it's uh, 50 parts per billion. And um, it was lower than that. And it still uh, created uh, byproducts that, that were, you know, dangerous. And, and so um, I think that we just don't know enough about these topics yet. And, and because a lot of these studies that you, you hear people quoting and things like that, they're done in laboratories. That's not the same thing as a house where people live and with all the different materials, they're usually like in a metal chamber when they do these tests versus like your house has glues and woods and varnishes and all different kinds of VOCs that can react with these uh, materials and can sometimes create byproducts that are making worse than it was before. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it's why I always recommend just simple four-stage HEPA filtration, really good quality product um, and simple cleaning like sure if you want to disinfect your toilet go for it um but like there's really nothing better than a bit of diluted castile soap in water to just clean a surface or you can do your vinegar water if you don't have tiles or marble that um that would get disturbed by that um but 
can I, can I keep you for just a couple more minutes now that we're on cleaning? Because a lot of people worry about the best way to clean shower and bath spaces, tiles. Um, I've been interested in some of the research around uh, essential oils and wearing out grout and that not being a great way forward in bathroom spaces, especially, you know, knock yourself out on a regular kitchen counter. But um, if we're talking about maintaining the health of our waterproofing in, in you know, places that have pipes and, and water going under the, the buildings, like what is the best way to clean a bathroom in your opinion? So for tiles, especially, this is a huge question that I frequently get asked. So the important thing is to remember grout is porous. So, you know, on the extreme end, if, if grout has been neglected to a degree where it's black, it could be so into the into the the pores of the grout that you're just it's not surface anymore. It's underneath, and you're not going to be able to get to that. So that's like you know the the kind of extreme situation. But what um, some of the ways that we like to use here, and I agree with you 100%. There's, you know, essential oils would not be my pick for that. But um, I really like steam cleaning. Um, that's been a, a successful way, especially if you have some staining. I wouldn't recommend doing that every single time. You know, in the meantime, kind of like for, you know, you have your deep cleaning days every, you know, three four months and then uh, you're kind of keep up. And once you kind of get it that way, if you make sure you squeegee every time you take your shower, it's not gonna come back and create big, deep biofilms. Another thing we'll use is just dish soap and water, you know, that surfactant to get it off. Um, if you wanted to kick it up a notch, you could use uh, Branch Basics has a product. I don't know if they ship to Australia, but I believe the main ingredients is sodium bicarbonate and uh, sodium bicarbonate and I'll have to look in the bottle. Um, but it it's it's not like anything really complicated. It's like OxyClean, basically. Yeah, like a natural bleach. Yeah, kind of I think vibe. it's sodium percarbonate mm. is the mm. other ingredient in that. And I'll just kind of put that like you know, put some soap and water and then kind of sprinkle and let it sit. And it can help to kind of get some of the stains up. I'll just use a toothbrush. It doesn't have to be fancy. Um, and just kind of scrub that out on there. Um, cleaning drains is another big one. Um, I have, I use bottle brushes, you know, to clean like baby bottles or even bigger. I use those to get like down into the drains. And again, no disinfectants you're you're wanting to remove at this point. You don't bring any kind of sanitizers or disinfectants or anything in until every surface is clean on there. But um, I will use, I have a, um, a, a steam cleaner that uh, I love and um, it works great at kind of getting stains out of the grout. And it's not so abrasive that um, it would like destroy it. I mean, certainly if you did it every day, like that, <laughs> you yeah. really want to do that, but you know, every but for your seasonal deep clean yeah. and yeah. like often mold um, and black appears in the siliconing around a seal. Uh, what I've always recommended, please tell me if you would think otherwise, but I always recommend 
like, let's go prevention in our bathroom. So first we have to just actually get the silicone replaced by a tradie and get fresh silicone done and keep it all nice and dry while it dries and then go for a dehumidifier on after the family showers so that it just keeps everything nice and dry because the little extractor fans, like half the time they're fluing into a wall cavity, which is a disaster. Other half of the time, they're just not powerful enough. Um, so I'm a big fan of like tucking a little compact unit of dehumidification under your sink and then it just goes on and then go to just being a really effective squeegeeer, a cleaner and putting on your dehumidifier after the showers. Cause the DMs are crazy. What do I, how do I get the, I'm like, just actually replace it and now become a preventer. That's my, my vibe. I can't agree. You, you know, if I were to like, go show you my bathroom, I never have to really scrub my No, tires, neither. Ever. Right. Yeah. Don't get dirty because I, I have, it's such a habit now. Like when I first started, I was like, oh man, it's a pain. You know, I don't want to do this, but now it's like ingrained. It's just part of my thing, you know, shave hair and do the thing. And, and as long as you do that, you will not get any growth in there and it won't happen. And your cough will stay nice and pretty and your grout will stay nice and pretty. And so if you do get a problem, the unfortunate thing with the caulk, it's usually behind it because that's where the moisture caulk isn't perfect. And especially if you're not drying the shower afterwards, that waters, even a couple drips every time you take a shower that gets back in there. Once again, it's the moisture. Preventing the moisture will prevent you from having those microbes. But yeah, when you do replace it, I would just recommend um, maybe using, a, if you have another shower in your house, because you really want to get that, like I would let, let it dry for like a day or two before I would even apply caulk or maybe put a fan right where it is to get it real dry deep in there too. Um, we even have like a little uh, highlight in our Instagram of how to do that. Peter actually did it in our last house and he shows some neat tricks of how to use dish soap on your finger to smooth it out and um, put it in there. And he, he does like a whole little thing on that if anybody wants to see how to do it. We actually use like some non-toxic caulk as well. So mm. um, yeah, we're going to have the wonderful Andy Pace join us next. Ooh, that's where I we know. got our stuff. He's I awesome. bet you did. He's the best yeah. Um, yeah. to talk about all of those non-toxic things we can do with our building materials because, you know, green chemistry has come such a long way, right? It's it's um so great to have options and like more options in Australia, but to even just know they exist now and um, some better international shipping you know, like I'm one of those dags who goes in with other green-minded friends and just, yeah, it's 50 bucks shipping, but if the three of us get, you know, um, some cork refills for our guns, then at least it'll be cheaper. Um, yeah, I, I often say like a diary and times of a mold-affected lady. It just it changes you as a human in terms of what you care about. Um, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You reminded me. Another thing I would... Highly, highly recommend. And they're probably, if you've never done it, uh, most people are like, wait, what? We're supposed to clean those? So on your, sink, on your sink, the overflow hole that is usually like by where your belly button is on many sinks, it's like 
the little hole, not your drain, but there's a little hole, at least here in the States, we have them. Um, and they get very, very, very yucky. And I even have, I have lots of gross cleaning videos <laughs> on my uh, Instagram highlights. So if you like that kind of like watching things go from clean to or dirty to clean, I have a lot of those kind of videos on my um, Instagram. And because I don't want to open my phone and be rude because I'm talking to you, it's P-J-H-A-R-L-O-W, right? That's your Insta. Wellness. Wellness. I knew there was yeah. something else. I just wanted to type it here for anyone who wanted to literally jump on their phone right now and make sure they're following you, but you'll get everybody's contact details at the end of the festival. PJ, I mean, we went a lot of places just there and I, I am very conscious of the fact that it is way past your bedtime on that side of the I world. It's, I want to say midnight. <laughs> I know, I know. And it's so hard to wind down after inspiring chats as well. So I just want to, I just want to bid you good night. Um, a, a huge thank you for joining us and sharing so much of your knowledge. It's really the start of a journey when you come across someone like you, because yes, you can spend an hour and, you know, almost an hour and a half together now um, and, and talk about all of these things. But I also recognize that sometimes it leaves you with more questions than you had at the start, because you now know so much more about the possibility of a clean and beautiful, healthy home, um, which you seek to define in, in a way that brings us back to nature instead of being terrified of everything living, which is something I really want to avoid in this whole exploration of mold, biotoxin illness. Yes, that's a terrible thing. Yes, we've been through it and continue to be more susceptible than the average human as a result. But it doesn't mean we can't have healthy home goals. It doesn't mean we have to be scared of everything that lives. In fact, if we do that, we would make ourselves sicker. We know that. We don't, you know, bubble boy living, we we all saw that. And um, I think it really, it really brings home how damaging it can be to a person's system to be sterile in the way it we live. Can. Mm. It can. And even, you know, we talked about the Facebook thing. And I think that there's a lot of extremists, you know, you're going to meet people. There's a spectrum to this, right? And, you know, and again, that's something I'm, I'm currently working on, you know, launching is um, some new things for people to, to help them understand, you know, where they fit in this, because there's certainly a lot of data out there, but I think that's one of the things that people struggle is to understand where they fall in in you know the line of this you know and really understanding i mean even at the beginning of this i used to refer my to myself as hypersensitive i was never hypersensitive now that i know what that means i was never hypersensitive i just heard people say it and i thought oh that must be me like i'm hypersensitive right yes see i wasn't you know i was very sick Yes. And, you know, very sick to where I was bedridden for two years and, you know, couldn't take care of myself. And, and, and so I had neurological damage to the point where I couldn't talk. Um, and it, but, you know, now I'm much better, but looking back, I, I understand all of these things. And, and so, you know, I think that um, there's just, so much still to learn and so much still that 
Um, you know, we have to offer people to help make this an easier process so they didn't have to, you know, so all, I like to say also all this pain doesn't go to waste, you know, not just our own, but the people that we've met along these journeys and the things that they've taught us, I, I cherish and I'm honored that I've been able to be a receiver of some of that for, for some people and walk this journey with them. And I, I've made a promise to not let any of that go to waste and that, you know, to keep continuing to try to learn more as much as we can and and to certainly make some changes, which I'm happy. And I love connecting with other people who have that mindset and really want to make it different. So thank you for, for having me. Oh, such a pleasure. And thanks to those of you who were able to make it. We had three of you for a whole hour and a half, you legends. Um, but uh, yes, this will be in the wrap library that everyone will receive along with some cheat notes uh, and timestamps to get to different parts, especially given we went so many different places. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks to everybody who was able to make it live. And uh, here's to connecting with PJ Harlow Wellness on Instagram for the amazing amount of additional information we can learn from you. You're a legend. Thank you. You too. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.